Our gospel reading today is going to be out of Luke 24, and we're going to start with 1 to 12. We may at a couple points um, dip into the passage following that, but I'll give you a heads up. Right now, we're just going to read 1 to 12. Luke writes, but on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their face to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, and be crucified, and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now, it was Mary Magdalene, and Joanna, and Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told told these things to the apostles. For these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home, marveling at what had happened. This is the word of the Lord. Well, he is risen. Um, Many of you were with us this morning and last night and on Friday night and on Thursday night. (laughs) It's been a lot of church. Um, And there's a good reason for that, I think. Uh, The words of Isaiah 51, awake, awake. Powerful, (laughs) powerful acclamation there in 51.9. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the days of old, the generations generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Now that, if you know Isaiah, you know that he's talking, well, he's talking to God, but he's, he's talking to God for a people who are coming back from exile in Babylon, who are coming back uh, from decades away from their home, away from uh, the people who, or the place that they've called home. They've been in exile. They've been refugees in Babylon. But he's using the language of Egypt. He's using the language Rahab is Egypt. So when he says Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? He's talking about God's redemption of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, through the Red Sea, to the foot of Sinai, through the wilderness, and finally into the land of Israel. And so I hear just in this one passage, and then as we read this, Today, on Easter, I hear four different stories. (laughs) There's the story of Israel coming out of Egypt. There's the story of Israel coming out of Babylon, back home. There's the story of Easter, of Resurrection Day, of Jesus being raised from the dead, that we would read it on this day. And there's the story of Cordova Church of the Nazarene in Sacramento, California, as we read it in this church. So whose story are we in? Whose story are we in? 
you could read this and you could go, well, it's Egypt and it's Babylon, and then if we're kind of following the line, it, then Jesus' story must be about Rome, and then our story must be about whoever, whatever empire is oppressing me, and then we all get to point fingers at our least favorite empire. We get to pick, if we read it that way, <laughs> the oppressor that we get to throw off. And as I was reading the, uh, the gospel story this week, I was reminded that so many of Jesus' disciples thought he was coming not to kill death, not to bring an end to sin. They thought that he was coming to redeem Israel, to liberate Israel from Rome. The problem with that story is that you've got to tell that story and see it enacted in Egypt, and then you've got to see it enacted in Babylon, and then you've got to see it enacted in Rome, and over and over and over again you need a new Messiah, whether it's Moses or Isaiah or Nehemiah or whatever Jesus was supposed to be or whoever our Messiah is supposed to be today, and you just always kind of need to have this new Messiah who's coming to throw off the new oppressor. Because in that cycle, whoever gets, somebody gets thrown off, and then once someone gets thrown off, somebody rises up. And the people who rise up always tend to look a lot like the people who just got thrown off. <laughs> right? We just go on this merry-go-round ride. So victory over who? Or victory over what? Awake, awake. Who's the dragon that gets pierced? Well, we don't know exactly. Someone probably knows. I don't know exactly. <laughs> but it's the wickedness of Egypt. It's the sea of the deep. It's the gods that surrounded and supported and held up Egypt that God would pierce in order to be able to bring his people out. It's the powers of the sea that were dried up so that he could bring his people through. The deep and impassable place has become a road. What we come to here in Christ, what we come to here on Easter, is the redemption and the liberation from the great enemy. We come to the redemption and the liberation that Egypt and Rome and Babylon and the United States or Russia or whoever today is our sort of empire that needs to be thrown down. We come to the defeat of that enemy that all of those empires mimic. We come to the defeat of the one that all wickedness and, pa and power and sin is trying to be like. So, let me not get ahead of myself. <laughs> the women early on that Easter morning Jesus died on a Friday. The Sabbath is pretty critical in Jewish understanding and life. And so they bring his body down because it'd be pretty desecrating to have a, a dead body hanging up through the Sabbath, especially kind of a big Sabbath like the Passover. So they bring his body down. They put him in a tomb. The women can't do what they would normally do for a body to honor, to respect, to care for it on that Friday. And they're not allowed to do it on that Saturday, so they hold off until Sunday morning, right? Being good, observant, faithful Jews, they hold off until Sunday morning. Sunday morning, they're on their way to the tomb, 
as early as they can at daybreak. And what do they find? The stone rolled away, and no body inside. Not nobody inside, but no body inside. Because there is somebody inside. The somebody that's inside is men in dazzling clothes, angels, angelic witnesses, creations of God who are present to witness to this moment. Right? And they say, why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but he is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered in the hands of sinful men and crucified and on the third day rise. And then they go, oh yeah. <laughs> and they remember his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to eleven and all the rest. Okay. Jesus, still alive. Right? And there's always this desire, right, Jimmy, to, to zoom into that moment. <laughs> what would it look like when he took that first breath again? What would it look like when his eyes popped open, right? When he sat up, how did he get the linen clothes off, right? One gospel tells us that he just kind of passed through them, but the headpiece was folded up. So I don't, I don't know what that's all about, right? But that's the thing is, in the gospels, that's not the point. The point is not how it happened. The point is that they're there in the tomb, that Jesus is raised, and we know that he's raised because not only is his body not there, but there's actually a not divine, but celestial witness, this angelic witness to the fact. These people in, in dazzling clothes. Jesus, this is important, Jesus has become strange to his own friends. Jesus, the risen Christ, in his resurrection body, becomes in a way unrecognizable to them. And we have all these Stories in the Gospels of people encountering Jesus after his resurrection. Until he's opened their eyes, they don't know who he is. He's become strange. He's just as physical. He eats and drinks. We'll get to that in a minute. They can touch him. They can feel him. But he's somehow extra physical. He's somehow a kind of physical that witnesses to something that's coming. Something that is yet to come. Witnesses, we discover, are actually kind of important. Witnesses are important in Scripture. Witnesses are important in our own lives. I know that you all know about the greatest maritime tragedy in American history, right? Any guesses? Wrong. Why would I use that example? <laughs> You're really close, though. The Sultana. The tragedy of the Sultana. 1865, just a couple days after the end of the Civil War. There was a steamboat on the Mississippi going between St. Louis and New Orleans. Uh, the steamboat had had some trouble with one of its boilers. This is one of those steamboats with the big paddle wheels in the back, like all Mark Twainy and stuff, you know, and, and headed down the Mississippi, and on its way back up, it got contracted. It had some problems with one of its boilers, so they pull over and they get a little patch. They don't really do a full fix on it. And they get contracted as they're at that stop 
to take Union POWs who had been captured by the South, Union POWs back to the North. Okay? And here's the thing. They were getting paid by the head. <laughs> right? They were getting paid per person. So the Sultana, which is rated to carry, was like 365 people. 376. 376. They're getting paid five bucks for every enlisted man and ten bucks for every officer. And they cram over 2,000 people onto this boat. And it's April. So the Mississippi is at flood stage because of the spring thaws. Trees and rocks and, I don't know, poorly planned houses, all kinds of things are in the river and just flowing down. And the waters are freezing. As the Sultana is coming up the river, that boiler that didn't get fully repaired but just kind of got patched, that boiler explodes. The fire spreads and blows all the way through the ship. One of those big paddle wheels gets blown off into the river and floats down. There was a father and his son standing on the shore and they heard a bang and they walk out and just see this paddle wheel floating down the river. And over 1,800 people died. 300 more than the Titanic. Now this was April 27, 1865. 12 days after Abraham Lincoln had been shot. Right? And the country has just spent all kinds of time hearing about the Civil War and death and all sorts of things going on. And so news of this explosion, news of this tragedy just didn't quite make it out into the world. People just didn't know about it because the witnesses were so overwhelmed with other things. Even though you're, in, you're watching this event, if you were watching it, and you see Confederate soldiers helping Union prisoners of war onto the shore, but without witnesses, even a terrible and great tragedy just passes us by. There's no one to tell the story. Events happen, and then they move on. If there's no one to carry the news, things just take place and disappear, at least in our consciousness. But God sends those angelic witnesses into that tomb to announce and to proclaim. And what is it that they announce and proclaim? He's not here. He's alive. He's not among the dead. He is among the living. Those angels then send those women to announce and to proclaim. They leave the tomb. Hearing the news from the angel, in Luke's story, they haven't even yet seen Jesus. But here they go with the word that the angels told them back to the eleven to tell them. What started as absence, what started as a body not being in the tomb, becomes pretty quickly, because of the witness, because of the words of the angels, because of the words of the women, it becomes a presence. 
It goes from absence, there's nothing here, the thing I expected hasn't shown up, to presence. Now I don't understand why, but I know that something has gone on. And now I've got to fit my life around that something. Now I've got to fit my life around the fact that Jesus is alive, and that changes everything, but I can't quite tell you why. They aren't yet able to put words to it. This really importantly parallels something in Luke's gospel. In fact, it parallels the very beginning of Jesus' life. Jesus is born and laid in a manger, probably in a cave, probably in a place that was cut out from the rock, probably in something a little bit like a tomb. And laid in the manger where the animals would eat, and who comes to see him there? It's not the wise men. I wanted it to be because the spices the women carry and like the gold and the frankincense, that would be awesome. But, but it's not the wise men. Who comes to see him in the manger? Shepherds. Disreputable shepherds. People who kind of lower and not really to be believed. Kind of like the women in Luke's day, right? We, in Luke's day, we understand this is cultural. It's not how it ought to be, okay? But God entrusts with a choir of angels, brings the word to people who the world wouldn't trust and uses those disreputable witnesses to carry the word of the angels, to see the event that has happened, to be able to spread that news to the 11, to the world, to everybody in Bethlehem. Both the women and the shepherds meet God in a way that no one had before. The shepherds meet God as a baby in a way that nobody had before. The women meet the risen Christ in a way that nobody had before. Nobody had had these encounters, so they're walking into the situation not knowing what to do with this. And then, come Luke, then comes Luke's next story. That very day, two of them, this is verse 13 and following, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking to each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. These are two disciples, two men who have followed Jesus, who walked with him, who saw everything that happened in this last week, who had even heard the news we discover that Jesus has been risen, but don't know what to do with it, so they take off. They're walking along the road, and they encounter a Christ that they don't recognize. They encounter a Jesus that they don't know. This is the strangeness of the risen Christ. As much as we want to make Jesus personal, as much as we want to make Jesus' voice one that we recognize, we also need to know that there is something more going on. There is something incredible. There is something fantastical and miraculous about this Lord. These two disciples are looking for something else. They're looking for a Christ figure. right? They're looking for somebody who's going to come and do what they think the Messiah will do. A leader that liberates. What they find, remember that cycle, what they find instead is not a Messiah who enters into the same cycle of liberation and oppression. What they find 
is the Messiah who destroys the need to look like your oppressor. What they find is the very Savior who destroys sin and death. So that in that cycle of liberation and oppression, as we become liberated, we don't have to become the oppressor. As we become freed, we don't have to become like the people who are holding us down. As we get set free from those things that we know own and contain and constrain us, sin and death and all of its minions, we don't have to be like sin and death and all of its minions. I hope you see how different that is than the world. I hope you see how transformative it is once we get that into our heads and into our hearts. That we're so freed from sin. We are so freed from the fear of death. We know that we're going to pass through death by faith and enter into that same resurrection that Jesus has entered into before us. And so we're able to live with this sort of power and freedom that we don't have to become like the people above us. But what's so humbling about this story as these disciples walk along the road to Emmaus is that they don't recognize Jesus and instead they have to be taught. Jesus says to them, He says, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. The women, the shepherds, the disciples, they have to learn ultimately from the angels and from Christ himself what has happened. You know, if you were showing up on the scene of the Sultana just having exploded in the Mississippi River, you wouldn't know what was going on. A giant paddle wheel floating down the river, people pulling each other out. And in the same way, we need the scriptures opened up to us. When we come to the gospel, it's like, that sounds like great news, but I don't really know why. That sounds like great news, but I'm, I'm not actually sure how it impacts things. And sometimes we just have this vague sense that the gospel is this powerful thing that's out there, but we're still looking for the way that it contacts us. Right? We're still looking for the way that it enters and changes and turns us inside out. And we've seen it happen to other people, but we're still struggling with how it happens for us. We need to be taught. We need to be taught by Jesus in prayer. We need to be taught by the church. Not because the church is in that cycle of, you know, liberation and oppression, but simply because the church is the people who have had this long interaction with Jesus and with the Spirit. Right? So there's, there's wisdom there that goes deeper than any one person. What Jesus comes to teach those disciples on the road to Emmaus is that the biggest thing about the empty tomb and the risen Christ, what he shows them, what he reveals to them, what he opens 
up to them. But the storyteller, the one who wrote this story, the very word who spoke at the beginning of creation, the God who was revealed on the side of Mount Sinai in a bush that burned and was not consumed, the God that brought Israel out of Egypt and established them in the promised land and sent them off to Babylon and brought them back, to, <laughs> brought them back from Babylon, this same God, this storyteller, he reveals that in fact he is the main character of the story. What they don't know, they know that there's a storyteller, but they think that Israel is the character. Jesus comes in and shows them from the very beginning that he's the one who's told the story and that he is the main character. It may be normal to you to hear this, that all the scriptures point to Christ. That all the scriptures opened up, if you go deep enough into them, you discover at the bottom that Christ is there. And then they get to Emmaus. They've been walking quite a ways, and they're liking what this guy is saying, so they invite him in. They still don't know who he is. They invite him into the table, and here's Jesus, the guest at the table. But he stands up like the host. <laughs> it says, when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Christ reveals himself there at the table in that room in Emmaus. Their eyes are opened and they see that it's not about absence, it's about presence. As we come to this table, as we come to this communion, to this fellowship, so often we can come with a sense that it's a reminder that Christ is not here. We can come with the idea that I, I eat this little piece of bread and I drink this tiny little piece of juice and it's just sort of a reminder that, you know, I'm doing this sort of symbolic thing that, that shows me that Jesus isn't really here yet. And yes, the, the meal should build expectation for us. But we should also know that as we eat that bread and drink from that cup, it is the very body and blood of Christ. It is Christ's presence, really, with us. If we've been at the meal, if we've been reconciled to God, because again, that's here what this table is. When we come to the table, we come to eat a meal of reconciliation, of communion, where we commune with the Lord. I mean, if you go to a you go to a wedding, and it's not a wedding you're very happy about, but you got to go. You have to be there, right? If you go to the reception, guess what? You're in this thing. <laughs> There's this sort of, you can hold mental reservations all you want, 
But you show up and publicly display a sort of confirmation of what's happening, and then you show up to the wedding and you eat the food that they bought, and you dance on their dance floor, and you have a good time and go to the party and all of this stuff. Like, to some extent, like, you've agreed to that marriage. And there's something like that going on here at the table. We, we come to communion with, Father, with the Father. We say, look, Lord, whatever you say about yourself, that's what is true. So even if I hold reservations in my heart or in my mind, I ultimately lay them down in order to eat this meal. When we come to the meal, we become the people who bear the marks of that meal. We become the people like the women sprinting out of the tomb, like, like the disciples, Cleopas and the other one who doesn't get a name, uh, sprinting back from the table at Emmaus to tell them, we become a people who bear that reconciliation. We become a people who bear that peace. Which means that we've got to align our lives with that. We're like the women looking at the empty tomb going, I don't know what's gone on here, but I've got to fit my life around it. I've come to the table and it somehow meant more than I knew that it meant, but I've got to fit my life around that fact. We become like them saying, did not our hearts burn within us even as we were completely missing it? You know, it doesn't matter where you were when you came in this morning. It may not even matter where you are right now. Even the 11 disciples who heard those women come back with that news failed to believe them. They heard the very first sermon preached about the resurrection, and called it an idle tale. Cleopas and his buddy had heard the announcement, but that didn't change them. They still left Jerusalem. It doesn't matter where you are. It matters where you end up. Are you trusting and believing that this risen Christ is the Messiah of Israel? Not that he's a Christ figure. Not that he's the kind of Messiah you would like him to be. But are you believing and trusting that this Jesus who was crucified and raised from the dead is the one upon whom God has brought the end of the ages? That he is the Messiah that Israel has always hoped for. In fact, he's the Messiah that all of the world has hoped for. And that in his death and resurrection, he's blown out the side of hell like a boiler off the side of the sultana. The hell thought it had won and discovered that it had doomed itself. The good news is that the Lord has conquered, that he has slit the heads of Rahab, of the dragon, of sin, and of death. And that we don't need to live under those powers anymore. He is Lord over all, and we are invited into his victory. As we come and we eat today, we are eating to that victory. We are eating to the death of death, the nullification of sin's power. And I promise you, the deeper you go into this, the stranger it gets. <laughs> so submit my call to you. <laughs> Submit to being taught, like the women, like the disciples. Join the body of Christ as we seek to live out Christ's righteousness, his peace, his holiness in both body and soul. I'm going to finish with this 
announcement of Christ's victory. This is from a sermon that's 1,600 years old. And this is how it reads. Hell took a body and discovered God. It took earth and encountered heaven. It took what it saw and was overcome by what it did not see. O death, where is thy sting? O hell, where is thy victory? Christ is risen and you, O death, are annihilated. Christ is risen and the evil ones are cast down. Christ is risen and the angels rejoice. Christ is risen and life is liberated. Christ is risen and the tomb is emptied of its dead. For Christ, having risen from the dead, is become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. To Him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen.